And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's me with Ian Mond and James... Oh, that didn't work very well. That didn't work very well at all. <laughs> it's because you've got this Gary Wolf rhythm. That, I know, uh... <laughs> I know. I'll try it again. I mean, yeah, I'll try it again. It could work. I'll try it again. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand with special guests James Bradley and Ian Mond on the Coot Street Podcast! Okay, it was a little better. Now, if I was Gary here, I'd say something about how that introduction is just so wonderful. But it's not, is it, really? It's kind of rubbish. I don't know why Gary likes it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would happily stop. I'd do something else, right? I mean, anyway. Welcome. Welcome back to the podcast, both of you. It's great to have you here, Ian. Thank you. And it's great to have you here, James. Thanks. And, and and thank you for sort of joining in on what has been an idea that Ian and I have been sort of throwing around for a couple of weeks now, because I think you're aware, Ian, that or uh, James, that Ian is embarked on this insane project where he is reading the the, the novel nominee ballot from a year's worth of international awards. That's right, isn't it, Ian? Yeah, that's right. About, um, if you count the locust categories as individual, about 23, 24 shortlists. <laughs> See, that's nuts. Uh, oddly enough, can I ask you a question about your project, Ian? Which I, yes. I have been following on your blog, and um, I was, in fact, talking to my partner about it last night. And she was going, is he doing the Miles Franklin and the Australian Awards as well? He must be out of his mind. But you haven't been doing the Miles, have you? You didn't do it last year, did you? No, I didn't do it last year. I'm not doing it this year. And yes, I've actually, uh, it's actually quite bad that I'm not doing anything Australian at all. Uh, so it's something I probably need to rectify next year, but then I'd have to drop right. something. And there's no judgment from me on that. I think what you're doing is kind of peculiar in the first place. I was just <laughs> curious when I was... Uh, what that whether that was a deliberate parameter or just a kind of oversight? No, it was an it's an oversight. It's a genuine oversight. I didn't mean to diss the entire Australian literary landscape. So uh, yeah, no, it's an oversight. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you've done now. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's interesting because you know last year's man Booker winner was an Australian. Um, mm. this, there's uh, there's dust by Yvonne. I can't pronounce the second name, so I apologise. But who 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 was the nominee for the Folio Prize? She's in Australia. Well, she lives in Australia. I don't know if she's yeah. Well, she's a citizen, I assume. So, God, that that went downhill very quick. Um, but <laughs> uh, she's she lives in Australia. So uh, you know, there's the odd Australian that pops up. So I'm not entirely. Sorry, can, uh, can, can we just backtrack? You mean dust the the, the Kenyan book? Yes. Did yes. you say she's living in Australia? Is she? Yes, I believe she lives in Brisbane or something. Yeah, it's, it just surprised me as well. It's in her about the author bit. Oh, I didn't know that. I actually borrowed it from the library on the strength of your review of it the other day. It's sitting on the stairs outside. I didn't realise she was in Australia. How interesting. Um, I, I would say one thing I found really interesting about your project, Ian, is watching you... Like, it's watching that kind of engagement between genre and the kind of literary world happening, in a sense, from the opposite direction from the direction that I had it, you know, I, I kind of came back and you seem to be going back out. And it's really, it's been really interesting watching it, I think, on your blog. It's why the Locus nominees, once they get announced, um, and I don't know, you know, but once they get announced, that for me, Locus, uh, more so than the Hugos and the Nebula, are what I call coarse uh, science fiction and fantasy. And I'm fascinated to see how I react to those books uh, as distinct from the number of literary books I've read. Because, yeah, there's no doubt I'm really uh, enjoying... Like, the Folio shortlist was, I thought, fantastic. I think there were issues with it, but on the whole, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm just interested to see how I bounce off um, actual core science fiction novels, whether I'm drifting away completely or whether I'm still hanging on by a thread. I don't know, this Hugo Award might knock me completely away, but, you know, that's, that's what <laughs> well, we I mean, discuss. I was going to ask you, actually, and this sort of covers it pretty much, was do you find you're reading differently? I mean, apart from the fact you have yes. to sort of, like, keep reading because you're reading to get through all this stuff. H how? Yeah, well, I'm reading more disciplined, so I'm trying to knock off thirty to 35,000 words an evening, <laughs> uh, which is an equivalent of about 100 pages. Um, and I'm taking arduous amounts of notes, which, I mean, I, ne I, mean, I never used to do that before, so I'm really... You know, if I was to be pretentious about this, I'm really going all all guns hermeneutic on this stuff to get to get a real understanding of the works I'm reading. And and as a result, 
I find that genre stuff wobbles a bit more when you really do that sort of close analysis, unlike literary fiction. Having said that, I don't like the literary genre ghetto situation. I'm trying to fight against that as much as possible. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an odd conflict that I'm going through, a tension, which, which actually is enjoyable as well. So, so prior to your turning your attention to the Hugo Awards and the uh, Hugo ballot being announced, what were you reading roughly? Were you, were you reading you know, literary shortlists at that time? Uh, yeah, but only in and out. I wouldn't. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't focusing on it. Uh, my, like last year when I ran, read the Man Booker, that was the first time I'd read the entire Man Booker. I'd never done that before. Mm-hmm. So my focus has always been genre. Really, yeah. that's where my interest is. I, I envy you somewhat. I think mostly, you know, I'm, I'm still Do buried. Oh, I'm kind of buried in the. Um, I mean, voluntarily. I mean, I've, I've sort of, you know, interred myself in, in, in genre with such a sufficient volume of stuff to read that the idea of being able to take a month out that it would take me or two weeks out to read the Man Booker shortlist seems almost impossible. And yet I remember when I was about 20, I took a, like, I've been reading genre steadily for about, since I was seven. I took a year out and read no genre at all, read mainstream novels, enjoyed them. That was when I fell in for it for you know John Irving and Don DeLillo and people like that, um, and now I'm sort of sitting there going, I'm kind of a little tired of it. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, look, I'll be honest. I'm not doing this for any long term agenda. It's simply because I'm shit. Sorry, explicit warning now on your podcast <laughs> uh, at choosing at choosing what to read next. So as I've I've written a review for a for a web website coming up soon um, and the, my first paragraph essentially says that I was <laughs> I'm doing this because um, I needed someone else to make the decisions for me so I'm just relying on a whole bunch of tastemakers and gatekeepers to do it rather than me make the decision that's so uh, and, and, and it's working fine I'm, I never have a I never have a moment when I have to choose what to read next someone does it for me but gatekeepers are evil aren't they Ian big pardon gatekeepers are evil aren't they yeah they are, they, they are. <laughs> no, no but it's good though I mean you know, I mean, it's it's opened my eyes to a world that I would never, ever have looked at. And I actually recommend it to uh, others who listen to this podcast. Maybe not to the extent that I'm doing it at the moment, because you may go mad, because I'm slowly beginning to in, to go that way. But to pick a literary shortlist and and just and go with it. See what, see what, because genre is not the whole story. And we know that already. I mean, that's a yeah, pretty obvious statement. But um it's I, I highly recommend it if you want to open your eyes to what actually is being written out there in the world and yes i know it's mimetic fiction and we should no, sneer no. at it sometimes no, but um well no, i'm just that's i'm just copying what others have said you know mocking actually more um but yeah i think i I, I, envy, a... I think i envy, envy anybody right now some kind of reading project i mean do you have time for them james or are you blown by what blown by the wind that comes through the front door with, with all the various books showing up and everything uh, a bit. I mean, because I review quite a lot. I, I have quite a lot of work reading too, but I'm also writing a lot at the moment. And just the kind of, uh, yes, my reading, I have not been reading as much as I would like. I mean, I normally, if I'm reading well, I get through probably two or three books a week, but I'm probably down to one, maybe two at the moment. Okay. Which is not good for me. Well, let, let's turn our, our attention to the Hugo ballot for this year. The 2015 Hugo Awards ballot was announced. Uh, a few weeks ago, then it was re-announced, and then it was re-announced again. Uh, and, you know, a final version of the ballot emerged a week or so ago. We're going to restrict ourselves completely just to the best novels. Personally, I think this is a relief to me because I don't think I could get through the rest of it. I, I note for the record that the these Hugo Awards will be presented two days before the centenary of the birth of James Tiptree Jr. in um, in at Sasquan in... Um, some places, some places in America, wherever it is. The, the nominees for Best Novel are The Dark Between the Stars by Kevin J. Anderson, Skin Game by Jim Butcher, Ancillary Sword by Anne Leckie, The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison, The Three-Body Problem by Sixin Lu, translated by Ken Lu. I note for the record that of these, two are fantasy novels, three are science fiction, only one of them is a standalone book which probably says a lot about the nature of the field today. Does this bug anyone as much as it bugs me? All the sequels? Yes. Uh, a bit. How about you, James? Uh, yeah, the sequel. I, I don't know what I think about the sequel thing, to be honest. Um, I mean, it seems it always seems odd to me to be 
taking a book that is not a discrete thing and putting it on a short list. But if it's a sequel, I mean, if it's a discrete book, it doesn't worry me me so much. I mean, on the other side of the fence, on the literary side of the fence, Hilary Mantel won the Booker Prize with both the first and the second part of those Wolf Hall books. And I think there's a good chance she'll win with the third if it's any good. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem that's endemic to the genre world. No, but you can go through whole literary shortlists, he says now having read a bunch, without <laughs> seeing a sequel to anything. I mean, even Marilyn Robinson's book, Lila, is only, ten, I mean, it is connected to Home and her second book, I mean, obviously, but it's so standalone that you don't, I didn't have to, have, I wouldn't have to have read the other two. It's mm. not so much in genre where there is definite connect, I mean, The Jim Butcher, obviously, is connected to a much bigger world, and frankly, I had to read all the Wikipedia pages leading up to it to get some sense of what was going on. So, well, you don't have to do that for Lila or, and and, and, may, and probably, I don't know about Hilary Mantel, but there's just not as many of these sequels in literary awards generally. No, there's not. And I suspect that's a function of publishing culture as much as anything. I mean, it's just not the way, it, it's not one of the ways that sort of literary work is presented and produced, you know, and it is one of the ways that it kind of meets the market in, in, in the genre world. You know, it's just, it's about a different kind of culture. Yeah. I, I think... One thing that's also worth noting is that you know these are disguised kind of sequels to some degree, and, and I, by that I mean, you know, the, the Kevin Anderson, which is slated as the first book in a series, the Saga of Shadows, is actually the seventh book in the world kind of thing, uh, where of course obviously the the Dresden is what fifteenth, it's in yeah, Butcher 15. Books, fifteenth in the series, and Silvery Sword is a middle volume which has all sorts of challenges for it, and I mean the three body problem, I guess, in some ways. Superficially, before you start looking at it, stands alone fairly well as being at least being at least the first volume in the series, rather than an interstitial piece. But I think that, I think it's a fair test to say when we get to them, do they stand alone well enough to be worthy? And I'm going to say, as an ambit for myself, having looked at the short list, and I should probably describe how I've looked at it in a minute. But this is not the worst short list that the Hugo's have ever, have ever kicked up. <laughs> not by any means is this the worst novel shortlist it's ever kicked up nor are any of these single works individually the worst books ever to be nominated for the Hugo can I put you on notice and ask what not that I think this would be the worst but what do you think was close well oh, apocryphally and call me Conrad was the you know, the worst but I have to tell you that I'm not going to get you give the chance they may be listening no I'm not going to tell you on air okay. what I think were the absolute <laughs> worst but there were a couple that were that rated below. And the initial plan for this, uh, James, you probably may not have been aware of this, was that Ian would read the books, and because I'm a, a, you know, a lily-livered piker, I would read the Kindle samples of the books. The first three or four chapters. And in a couple of cases, I've read the whole book. But So, let's move on. The Dark Between the Stars, to contextualise for listeners, I'm going to take a, a, a as I say, a, a, a page from someone else's notebook, and I'll just briefly read the um, Goodreads summary of it. And then we will go forward. Now, it got a 3.83 out of 5 rating from Goodreads, which means not a whole lot. Uh, 347 people voted for it. The book's described as, 20 years after the elemental conflict that nearly tore apart the cosmos in the saga of Seven Suns, a new thread emerges from the darkness. The human race must set aside its own inner conflicts to rebuild their alliance with the Ilderan... Nam no, the Ilderan... Ilderan? Ilderan. Net Empire for the Survival of the Galaxy. Galactic empires clash. Elemental beings devastate whole planetary systems. And factions of humanity are pitted against each other. Heroes rise and enemies make their last stand in the clim climax of an epic tale. Seven years in the making. In brackets, less. There you go. <laughs> I think the brackets, less, might be the Goodreads uh, thing. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. So, where should we start with this towering work of epic science fiction? Um, I read a third of it and gave up. How that probably speaks volumes about what I thought of this book. <laughs> I, I, the first thing I want to bring to it, I guess, is a, a comment that was made yesterday in another discussion I was having that really this isn't a science fiction book at all. This is epic fantasy set in space. You know, yes, that, that's what space yes. opera, is, opera is now. It's not really science fiction at all, it's a kind of epic fantasy. And it doesn't hurt to look at it from an epic perspective. This makes it sound like either an E. Doc Smith book or a Dune novel, which is not terribly surprising. What took me aback, the, the background to this book getting on the ballot, was that these are supposed to be fast-paced, entertaining reads. <laughs> this is anything but that. It's, it's plotting and leaden. I mean... Sorry, yeah. No, 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 you're right. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of put anybody down, but this is a quarter of a million word book, right? Yes. And I feel that 
any editor with a red pencil could have taken 70,000 words out of it and no one would have noticed. Yeah, Look, the, the issue is that, okay, I haven't read the other six books, that, and, and apparently there are continuing characters, and I'm assuming that if you've read the other six, and bugger me how you got through those, but if you have, <laughs> uh, there are some of these characters you'll, you'll be interested to know where they are now 20 years later. Okay. The problem is that every chapter essentially says, here's character X, Let's tell you where they've been the last 20 years and then another few paragraphs at the end of the chapter of what they're doing right this second. And that's the first third. I, I, I gave up at a point where the book was starting, the plot was just about kicking in, but I thought, you know what, stuff this for a game of cards. Oh, life's too short. <laughs> um, but I think 20-odd characters are introduced in that first wow. third. And it's just... Uh, look... George R. R. Martin has done the same thing, hasn't he, with the Game of Thrones Ice and Fire series? He's got a gazillion characters. Yeah, but but but, but he does it bestseller style. I mean, you know, he intertwines plots and he actually engages you, you know, um, pretty quickly within each of those narrative strands. He's very skillful at it. This doesn't seem to engage you at any point. No, and and what got me? I read some of the reviews. People saying, "Oh, this is a action-packed." You know, every page is, a, you know, is scintillating with action. Really? What What are you reading, people <laughs> saying this? What am I missing out on? Is yeah. it the commas, the look at the commas, the semicolons he's using? What What is it specifically that's jumping off the page and makes you think, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this before? I mean, at least Doc Smith, his books were very short. Well, well, and, not only were they... Well, I guess that that's the puzzle to me as well, and I don't know how much <laughs> if you, you read of any of this kind of stuff at all, James, but what puzzles me is the... The kind of books that we were led to believe might be making the, the, the Hugo Ballot, fast-paced, entertaining books, historically were 150, 200, 250-page books. 300 was a really substantial book. This is a 650-page book. And th I can see no reason for it being that long at all. And no. if you look at, just, just quick, sorry, I don't mean to jump in, James. I just, just want to make one quick point. The, 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 the Cluse is probably the shortest book of the five that they put on their slate, uh, from what I can understand, because the, the Gannon, which was nominated for the Nebula, is longer than the Kevin J. Anderson. <laughs> and the, um, the Skin Trade's not short either, or Skin Game, whatever yeah, it's yeah, called. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, that's about 160,000 words. Yeah, so we're so. not talking, you know, the 250-page uh, novels here. Sorry, yeah. no. Yeah, what were say, James? James? Oh, I was going to say, well, I mean, I think there is, you said something at the beginning about this being epic fantasy in space, and I do think, I'll come back to this in a moment, but I do think there's something interesting to be said about the way that what space opera can be has changed. Now, I don't have an objection to space opera. I mean, someone like James S.A. Corey, or mm -hmm. people like James S.A. Corey, um, you know, they're efficient you know, enjoyable books. Now, I haven't read the Kevin J. Anderson, but I thought it was interesting what you were saying about it being bloated and what Ian was saying about it being both kind of bloated and just kind of leaden because there was a really interesting piece by Laura Miller about five years ago on Salon and she was, what she did was she went and looked at a lot of those kind of self-published Amazon bestsellers that people say, it's great, it's got action on every page, it's a really easy read. And she did a kind of a reading of some of these books to say, look, but these books are terrible. Why do these people like <laughs> them? And to kind of test some of those things that they were talking about, about them saying, look, it's a really easy read. And when she said, well, when you read it, you know, it's this flaccid, boring prose. And she decided that in the end, what they were in fact praising was a kind of book that never tripped you up at any point, you know, that never, never kind of disturbed your process of reading. So it kind of could proceed in this completely uninterrupted kind of way. Which I actually think is really interesting because there is clearly a rise of a kind of, mm. you know, th this kind of alternative world of publishing, which is self-published books, many of which, you know, and some of them are good, to be fair, but, you know, a lot of them really aren't, you know, and they're, n they're not really good at a series of kind of technical levels about the management of prose, about the management of, um, you know, character and story development and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, there is something... There is something you find yourself wondering about. I mean, what it is? What is it? What is it that attracts people to these books? Is it the fact that they're free? Is it the fact that they're ninety-nine cents? You know, or is it actually something about the experience of reading them that they're getting from that that they're not getting from books that do other things? Or are there things that the other books are doing, which is kind of what Miller is suggesting, which is disturbing their reading practice? If that makes any sense, it does make sense. I think the latter two points are. Pro I, I think that the, the the price point is largely irrelevant for the majority of readers is my guess i mean not completely irrelevant but i don't think it's 99 cents 99 cents might get you to try something but it's not going to get you to keep coming back and coming back and coming back no 
You know, they're coming back because they like it. You know, and and that and that is really interesting. And they are they are looking at something. But I do think the space opera thing is really interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that's become incredibly evident over the last twenty years is that the future that science fiction man- imagined fifty years ago isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know. We're not going to find aliens. We're not going to fly between the stars. That stuff is not going to happen. Now, whether that was always fancy or not seems to me to be another question. You know, the pattern of science, I'm not clear that it really, you know, turned into science fiction in the way that people ever claimed it did in the first place. But, you know, there is something about looking at writers like Paul McCauley, writers like uh, Alastair Reynolds, you know, people like that who are doing, in a sense, they're doing space opera, but they're doing a kind of scientifically grounded space opera. So, you know, no FTL. You know, to live in space, you've got to alter yourself biologically. You've got to terraform planets to live on them. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's it's interesting to me that, you know, and I know we didn't work, we're going to try and avoid talking about the way the slate was put together, but it's interesting to me that a book that sounds as, that is as backward-looking in some ways as the book you're describing is one of the books they're celebrating when there are actually books that are doing that kind of scientific stuff, doing that adventure yeah. stuff, doing all of that in a really hard-headed kind of way. I agree. Celebrated. I think it's a mystery, a complete mystery to me. And I've not been able to understand it for the last 10 or 15 years why that strand of work by that body of authors don't get recognized by the group of people who are lauding books like this one. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they just want that mythic adventure kind of element of this kind of epic fantasy and not to be tripped up by the fact that I can't zip from here to there and I can't do this and honestly if you went to Mars it would kill you pretty quickly what they really want is stirring adventure yeah they, they, they want you know Horatio Hornblower stories in space yeah but if you compare this to a, a, this book to a Weber novel a Don Arrington series which I've read a bunch of yeah uh, that, as much as the politics of it gets uh, annoying mm. after a while, that's great stuff. I mean, you can zip through Basilic Station. I think that's the first one. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's genuinely engaging from page one. This thing is the prose on a sentence-by-sentence level, and I am actually terrible with grammar and syntax, but I picked this up. It is just impenetrable. It's terrible. I, I agree. This book is genuinely mystifying. Uh, I have no idea how it got nominated for an award. I've got no idea why it's a bestseller. Uh, and it you know, when I look at the kind of books, uh, James, that you were talking about possibly being the successful kind, the James, the Corey's, uh, a bunch of other people who are writing really popular, accessible, Lois Bouchold, David Weber, as you say, even Jim Butcher, who we're about to get to, they write engaging, accessible, entertaining fiction. This is clumsy on a line-by-line basis, which maybe you can overlook, but it ends up putting lots of text in the way of you reading the story, if you're trying to read the story. It seems to be clumsily constructed. I mean, uh, you know, Anderson always says that he, you know, sort of dictates his novels into a, into a recorder as he's out hiking, and it kind of reads like it a bit. You know, it, it's a it's a single straightforward journey. It's a bit repetitive. It's a bit clunky. It's a bit all over the shop. But you know, you get to the end of it, sort of thing. I don't know. So, look, we should move on, or we'll we'll yeah, digress on this book for, for far too long when we've gone to very little detail, other than to say, make it pretty clear that the two of us who've read portions of it weren't impressed <laughs> that's, that's a good summary <laughs> <laughs> and now we come to volume 15 in the dresden files skin giant game by jim butcher my personal background on this is i read the first four books and then moved on i did watch the tv show the the rather lengthy back cover copy is says of it because as winter night to the queen of air and darkness harry never knows what the scheming mab might want him to do usually it's something awful he doesn't know the half of it mab has just traded harry's skill to pay off one of her debts and now he must help a group of supernatural villains led by one of harry's most dreaded and despised enemies nicodemus archeon to break into the highest security vault in town so that they can access the high security vault in the never never and there's more and more of that but we'll not go there so i'm gonna throw to you ian first because you've read the book yes so it, it shocked me uh, that I've actually read nine Harry Dresden books. I thought I'd read less than that, but apparently I've read nine. Um, so I wasn't as um, off guard as some would have been reading this number 15. Mm. Um, look, I'll be short. It's engaging. It's a, it, he, he writes... I mean, he has... A, a, Harry Dresden's point of view is a very smug sort of 90s take. Like, you know, you know when we used to love Joss Whedon being self-aware and... And mm. Buffy being all self-aware, it's it's got that feel to it, which which was great twenty years ago and even a decade ago. Uh, but it's it sort of lost its sheen, and it's and you sort of just want to 
takes a stick to Harry. Although, having said that, I know a lot of people still love it. So it's just maybe, I think it's just a thing with me that I just don't like that smug, self-aware crap. And constant pop culture reference. There's this Star Wars reference that, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's, having all said that, it is engaging. Uh, it's a heist novel. You know, it's not yeah. a particularly original heist novel, but it's a heist novel. There's one very nice little uh, wrinkle in it, which I won't say too much about because people might want to read it and uh, who are fans. Um, but there is one at least nice idea at the centre of it. Um, it's not... He's often been called a uh, sexist and that in the way Harry views women. This won't change your view on that. <laughs> Every woman in the novel is looked at in a, you know, essentially how, how would I rate her out of 10 for shagging? Mm-hmm. Um that is excused in the book because Harry hasn't had sex for some time for ver- a variety of plot reasons, but it does get tiring having him wanted to sh- having to want to have sex with every woman he sees. But did I finish it? Yes. Did I get an, a, a low-level thrill out of it? Yes. Would I put it on a Hugo ballot? No. I'm interested to describe as a low-level thrill. Do you, do you mean that it appealed to your baser instincts, or that uh, it just wasn't that thrilling? A uh, bit of both. Okay. A <laughs> <laughs> bit of both. I mean, I spoke to a, a major Dresden fan about it, and he said that this was a, a pause book because there's there's a major event that occurs in the previous book, and this is just taking stock of things. So that's why it's not as uh, mind-blowing. And frankly, this book being nominated is clearly... A body of work nomination. It's not yeah, yeah. for this particular book, um, and that, that's that's obvious uh, because if, I think if you, most Dresden fans would agree that this this is not this is not the height of um, uh, of Harry Dresden. It's probably the changes. I think which is book ten. That's uh, that's the big one. That, that if you were going to nominate a Harry Dresden book, it would probably have been that one. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think what, what pushed me off these some years ago was that I read Charles Delint back in the eighties and early nineties, and if you've read Charles DeLint at all, you've read all of the material that um, Butcher is going to use. He's just going to mix in a bit of a mystery structure and a little bit of a noirish point of view for the the PI. But it's basically a spin-off of that. There's nothing particularly interesting uh, or new being done. That said, on a line-by-line basis, he's a perfectly readable and entertaining writer. I think he, he does well. Um, I think it's a decent book. I mean, it's plainly a popular book. It got 29,500 ratings on Goodreads, which is a hell of a lot more than any of the other books on this Hugo ballot. I have to agree. It wouldn't have made my Hugo ballot or my World Fantasy ballot or any ballot. It's the kind of book that I might have read 10 years ago in between a bunch of other books and not really noted it other to say that it was kind of mildly entertaining. Yeah, good sum up. You did better job than I just did. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. Now, because we're all social justice warriors, let's move on to the rest of the Hugo ballot. <laughs> and now to, to, to books that James has actually read, which will, will help. Uh, we start with Volume 2 in the Imperial Ratch series, Ratch series by Anne Leckie and Sillery Sword. And Sillery Sword got a rating of 4.8 out of 5 stars from Goodreads. Well, there's 6,028 people taking part. 4.8? No, 4.08, sorry. Oh, okay. 4.08. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that kind of presages your point of view. I'm going to go yeah, James first. Bit, it yeah. does. I'm sorry. I spoil it. Okay. Now, it says, what if you wanted thousands of bodies and near-godlike technology at your disposal? And what if all it were ripped away? The Lord of the Raj has given Breck command of the ship Mercy of Color and sent her to the only place where she could, would have agreed to go to attack Atoak's station where Lieutenant Orn's sister works in horticulture. Well, Atoak was an ex of some 600 years ago, and by now everyone is fully civilized, or should be. But everything is not as tranquil as it appears. Old divisions are still troublesome. Atoak Station's AI is unhappy with the situation, and it looks like the alien Presker might have taken an interest in what's going on. With no guarantees, their interest is benevolent. Dunk, dunk, dunk. Less. James, what did you think of Ancillary Sword, and I guess to some degree of its predecessor, Ancillary Justice? Um, look, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say about Ancillary uh, Sword by saying that I liked Ancillary Justice very much. Um, I thought it was a really, you know, in some ways it's quite a traditional book, but I felt it was a very fresh book at the same time. I thought that, oddly enough, I mean, things about gender in it were very interesting. I thought that um, its kind of dialogue with the tradition it came out of with uh, writers like Le Guin and others was fascinating. Um, But the thing I really loved about it was that I felt that 
you know, and I'm not someone who's usually very interested in kind of world building, but I, I really loved the sense of the culture that was built in it. And I loved the way that it was a book that was deeply engaged with a series of questions about power. And I, I actually said, I reviewed it back when it came out. And I, I remember saying that you could have, the epigraph to the book could easily have been that line of Benjamin's about you know, every history of civilization is simultaneously a history of barbarity. Um, because that's very much what it's about. It's about, you know, power, the nature of power, the way empires, you know, are machines for power. And it's really good on all of that, I think, both at a kind of political level, but also at a kind of personal level. And, you know, when that's married to what was really a very tight, interesting kind of plot, it, it worked really well. Um, and Sillery Sword, I was less excited by. And, and, and that's kind of odd because I felt like, Leckie's actual writing had kind of taken a huge leap upwards. She'd gone from being a really good writer to being a, really a very, very good writer. Um, her awareness of character, her observation of character, her rendering of kind of psychology is incredibly sophisticated and very well done, I think. Um, and I really loved all of those aspects. I loved the world building again. I loved all of the cultural stuff. The problem is that the plot's a mess and it just, you know, the book's, well, I mean, the book kind of lumbers along for kind of four-fifths of its length and then some stuff happens at the end. And so, I mean, I felt there was this real mismatch between, I guess, the kind of the fluidity and the efficiency of the plotting of ancillary justice and the kind of really wandering, kind of not very well articulated plotting of ancillary sword at the same time as i'd say that in many ways it's a much more sophisticated much more interesting book i couldn't agree more with what you've just said there james uh do you mind if i jump in yeah not at all i was kind of fishing out i mean i'm slightly mystified (laughs) by the fact that it's been it's already won a couple of major awards because i mean i you know i I, i'm totally down with ancillary justice winning all of these those awards and i don't think in any i'm not saying in any way that i think ancillary sword is a bad book i think it has many really terrific things about it. It's one of the best written science fiction books I've read this year. You know, and I do think, as I said, that her actual kind of grasp of psychology is so sophisticated and so acute. But, you know, it's kind of, it's just not, it, it doesn't grip you as you're reading it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I agree with you completely. I think um, the, the thing is uh, Ancillary Justice had a goal. She was there to get this gun and then kill the emperor. And Sillery Sword has no real goal. It's all very fuzzy as to what the actual point of the novel is. Mm. Um, you're right about the, the writing. I think it's much better. I think there are some beautiful passages around um, the cultural variations in, in this in this world, um, the difference between... As, uh, your, that epigraph you just said about barbarianism and civilization uh, is, is, is a pure summary of this book too because very much it's a focus on here we can we colonise... And then we run away and we leave these places in the crap. And, uh, and yes, we think everything's been fixed, but really it hasn't because there's all this turmoil simmering. And, and Breck, who's our, our used to be a spaceship now as a person, he gets, gets pushed into the middle of that. And, and what I found that was ambitious is that she's done the thing where rather than continue the story, she really wanted to focus on the culture and the whole concept around power and co- colonialisation and, and that's thing however she's done that and not actually told a story in some sense it feels a bit didactic feels like i'm there's a few it feels essayistic i don't know if that is even a word um but i've just made it up possibly (laughs) um and and that's all good and great but you're right i mean the most interesting character in the book um, other than breck who didn't doesn't always do it for me anyway uh, because she's a bit one tone or he he she whatever is a bit one tone uh, is the uh, um, translator for the press Preska? Is that is that how you pronounce it? I, I guess for, for the weird uh, alien race. But he gets killed after five pages, and because you get this lovely flash of personality in a book that where most of the characters are very to- tonally the same, you get this lovely flash of personality only for the guy to get a bullet. And yeah, oh well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit sad. <laughs> And, and also there were these hints about this other alien race that are so powerful, so this and so that, and yet we don't ever see them. It feels like a tease a lot of the time. Well, well, that actually begs an important question I want to put to both of you about this. 
how much do you think those issues are a result of this book being a middle book with ancillary mercenary coming later this year? You know, I mean, I know that for awards purposes and for review purposes, it's this is a book you've got to take on its own merits. But it's also the you know, the, the tent pole of a, of a trilogy. Um, do you think that may be what has undermined its plotting? Uh, short answer: Yes. James, I, I I don't know the answer because I don't have access to that. But yeah, that sounds like a likely a likely. Scenario. I mean, it felt to me like what we were doing was getting some stuff in place, getting the alien stuff more into play, you know, so we could move on to the third book. I mean, but I do want to go back and say there's so many things about this book I like. You know, I really admired a lot of it. I just wish it had been a bit more... I wish the plot had been a bit better defined and articulated, you know, because it really was... And I'd still... I must say, you know, I'm still dying to read the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I'm not. Because, um, well, because, look, the, the interest for me at the end of the first book was, well, what this whole idea of a of a split personality, an emperor who's cloned, well, not cloned, but embodied so many bodies that they've now got a, a split view on how the universe should be run. And this book doesn't really further that story in any way, shape or form. It's, again... More, more focused on Ratch or Ratch society and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the, the devastation in the sense they've caused to other alien worlds, which is all very good and well, but it hasn't been. Until the very end, there's really no furthering of the story that I actually found interesting at the end of the first book. I don't know if you thought the same, James, uh, but yeah, or Jonathan. Go ahead. Sorry, John. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I feel somewhat similarly. I mean, I, I, I did read this one. This wasn't one that I just Kindle sampled. And I had been engaged. I would admit at times I actually struggled a little bit with uh, the first book, first book, mostly, I think, because, you know, I, I don't think that the plotting was as uh, cohesive or an, or as uh, propulsive as it might have been at times to be diplomatic, but I think that it was nonetheless really engaging. This I probably like the pair of you. I struggled with a bit more. I think she has become an enormous talent, or is an enormous talent in the field now. And I would follow what she does next. Will I read you know, Ancillary Mercy? Mercy probably, but mostly I find myself in that in that mode where I'm waiting for the next book after that, which will be a standalone novel unrelated to this. And that's what I'm interested in, which I've... Yeah, I mean, if I read the third book, it's only because it'll be hoovered up in next year's awards. And yeah. that's the reason I'd be reading it. I wouldn't be reading it out of choice. But like you, I saw that uh, they, that she's doing a standalone. And I thought, yes, that's great. Because yeah. as you say, James, she's, there's some beautiful writing on display here. And I want to see more of that and maybe just some better story or a better framework around it. And a real kind of moral and psychological sophistication, I think, which is, I mean, which is kind of what I really respond to in these books. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison, described by uh, Goodreads, which gave it four point one out of five stars and four thousand ratings, as a vividly imagined fantasy of court intrigue and dark magic in a steampunk inflicted world by a brilliant young talent. Now, I'm not going to go on with the rest of the actual description. This is the seventh novel from Sarah Manette, the first writing as Catherine Addison. And I, I will preface by saying I'm two-thirds of the way through the book. So I'm a little bit behind. Don't wreck it for me. I'm really like enjoying it. it. I'm really enjoying this book. I think it's quite beautifully written at times. I think the characters are engaging. I enjoy the court intrigue aspect of it. In some ways, of all things, it reminds me of Catherine Kurtz novels, though I'm not entirely sure why. I will say I find some of the, the naming and the nomenclature a little bit uh, obfuscatory, I guess. <laughs> you know, I find it a little bit you know, sort of <laughs> interchangeable, and every now and again I want to refer to a character list. And, and Jonathan, she gives you a glossary and a list of characters at the back, which doesn't actually define half of the names in the book. So you can't be going to look up who they are, and then they're not listed. No, no. <laughs> and it, it also hits one of one of my pet peeves in a book that I'm really enjoying. I have to say, and that is, there's a certain element that I have no idea what, how to pronounce, and it drives me a little batty. 
you know it's it, maybe it's a quirk of my own i'm the kind of guy who when he got a carter which actually go, you know sort of googled so i could get a picture of the kind of trees that they were talking about when i was reading uh, caitlin kiernan's uh, the Drown, drowning girl i actually found the place on the on, on you know google earth where you could see the streets and parks that the character is walking through i like to have a really solid idea of what's happening and some of the stuff I'm like, I, I got no idea. It's the unthelibility court, something. I don't know. <laughs> but I really liked it. What about you guys? Uh, James, you can go first. Oh, I loved this book. <laughs> I read it, um, I mean, in a completely uncritical... I just I just loved it. Um, uh, I, 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 I'd been meaning to read it last year, and I kept being put off because the title is so dreadful. And I kept mm. looking at it and going, The Goblin Emperor. I'm not... In that kind of, I kept thinking, all these people keep saying it's good. And it's on everyone's best of the year list. And I'd look at it and go, it's called The Goblin Emperor. And it's got a picture of a guy with pointy ears on the cover. I just don't know I can read this. <laughs> it, and eventually it, it, I ordered it and read it just after Christmas. And I loved it. I mean, I loved it. And I had that really interesting experience where I, in fact, lent it to a series of people, several of whom are people who never read fantasy and science fiction, who also adored it. Like, yeah. adored it. Um, so it's one of those books that's clearly got that kind of response for a lot of people. I thought, it, you know, having said that I really enjoyed it, I love many things about it. Um, I I think one of the things that's interesting about it is there's a book that's very much about, you know, for those who haven't read it, it's about a young man or a young goblin, half-goblin man. Half-goblin man, is that something you can be? A young <laughs> half-goblin youth, prince, who is the fourth, I think the fourth in the line to the throne, to the goblin, to the, to the elven empire. And his father and all of his brothers get killed. Yep. And so, totally unexpectedly, he ascends to the imperial throne. Um, he's had a horrible childhood, banished to the middle of nowhere, raised by an abusive, um, an abusive kind of minor lord who's been sent there with him as punishment to raise him. And he kind of has to learn to operate in the imperial court. And because he's basically a nice person. You know, how to balance, I guess, the demands of power against his desire to do good. You know, and that, yeah. that's really interesting. Having said that I loved it so much, my minor criticism of it would be is that it's a book that's very affirming. And unlike a book like Ancillary Sword, in an odd kind of way, it's about many of the same things as Ancillary yes, Sword. Yes, mm. yes, Just, absolutely. They are much, I think, much harder about the nature of power. This is a book that actually wants to present you with something that is kind of a fantasy, which is that you can be a good person at the heart of the work, heart of power and still achieve good things and remain a good person. And I'm just not convinced it's quite that simple. I mean, I suspect that there's a rather darker book lurking under the, under the surface of this one that we don't, you know, that, that we're not given. But having said that, you know, it's funny, it's warm, it's beautifully written. It's, it's just, it's, it's a fantastic book. I really loved it, you know. I uh, I shouldn't let you go first, James, because you basically again said everything I was going to say. I gold it up. Uh, it, it felt to me a bit like Curse of Chalion, um, um, just because it, it deals with uh, people in power and privilege, and also oddly like Downton Abbey, because it has that upstairs <laughs> downstairs feel to it as well. Like you, Jonathan, I couldn't pronounce anything, and I just I just said, oh whatever. I'll you know, I got the feel of what everything meant, but uh, you know, I didn't. I, I just, you know, skimmed the the proper nouns. But um, and again, I agree with you, James, that there's a feel about it that things. Yeah, he, the, our main character does um, go through some uh, trials and tribulations, but it all feels a little bit easy, mm. um, especially in the last uh, third. Having said that, and I, that's a, that's something I say a lot. Having said that. Um, I love the fact that this is about a guy who falls in love with the idea of building a bridge. And I nearly cried, and I'm being dead set, um, when he has the bit where they're, they're, they're sitting with the council and the clockwork guys have come in to discuss the bridge and they've brought out this model and our goblin emperor falls in love with the model and all its workings. And and one of the uh, offsiders is showing him how the, the, the drawbridge opens and that, and it is just I'm actually just talking about it as making me feel shivery. Uh, it is just such a glorious, beautiful moment, and it's writing like that and moments like that that make me feel very, very happy about genre. It, 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 and even, even though, I mean, look, you could have had that scene in a non-genre book, but it's just something about the way it's characterised in this book. Just 
it got me all teary-deary. And, uh, and the book is like that. I mean, there are some, yeah, there's just some magnificent moments like that. It, it is, as you say, James, a little bit, bit, um, bit of an artifice to it, but I'll bugger it. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it was interesting you talk about Downton Abbey because in a weird kind of way, it's like a, the Downton Abbey of fantasy novels. It's a sort of reassuring fantasy of a fantasy novel in the same way that Downton Abbey is a kind of reassuring fantasy, you know, which is still interesting and entertaining and all of those kinds well, of things. Well, people, people, call, people call it Tory apologetics, Downton Abbey, <laughs> because of <laughs> the person who wrote it. I don't think Sarah Monet's Andrew Davies, and I don't think she's trying to uh, say, you know, rich people are all good, don't worry. They, they really do care about the lower classes. Um, I don't think that's the point of this book. But no, no. at times it did feel that, had that vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, having said that, it's, it's, it's such a... Ter- I mean, the, uh, that's a very minor criticism. Of, I, mean, I, you know, I think what I'm doing is struggling to find something to say. <laughs> I've got to say as well, I mean... It's nice to have a book that can be, if you like, less dark at times as well. You know, yes, I mean, great. Yes, there there are dark books. You know, I mean, I, I could imagine. In fact, I could clearly imagine easily the C.J. Cherry version of this book, um, which would be a much darker beast altogether. And I, I could, I could see the. Okay, I could see the value of adding one or two darker touches to it just to add more grounding to it. But I think, by and large, yeah, Addison has done a great job, and it makes me curious about Monette's earlier novels, which had kind of passed me by, I have to admit. Now, the story is that this one... Now, I'm not sure where I heard this or read this, but what happened was she wrote those first ones, and they were critically very well received. Yeah. Didn't sell at all. She took this one to her publisher, and they turned it down. So she took on a nom de plume because, you know, borders would, uh, not borders, none of the bookshops would order them in because the other ones had sold so badly, all of that kind of stuff. Assumed a pseudonym and went to a new publisher. So that's why I think she invented the new, the new identity. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I think I read that somewhere. That sounds consistent with the rumours that I've heard. Yeah. And, you know, it, I'll be interested to see whether, she, whether Catherine Addison writes differently from Sarah Manette or this is very typically a book for her, so... Well, there were no specific plans to do a sequel to this, according to someone told me on. <laughs> there's no, there's no plans. I mean, this could be a Tagana. Well, be just a... I, I think there may, there, there's, there will be more Catherine Addison books. It's just whether oh, there are yeah. more uh, books in this world. And I mean, I honestly kind of hope not. Frankly, I'm, I'm very happy having one book stand alone, particularly mm. on this ballot and with what we encounter so often in genre. And also because it's a book so much about boy and his mum and the redemptive story around not a redemption but just the yeah. uh, again it just, it's about it's about parenting it's about, and, and of course now that i'm a father i keep saying this about stuff that sort of stuff hits me really hard and it really is about a boy and, and the love for his mum and again it's something you don't get to see that often um and done in such a gorgeous way i'm for all the stuff about power and a, a man struggling as you said james with um that 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 balance between power and good and doing good just the fact that this is comes it constantly comes back to a boy wanting to do good for for his mum who died and who got treated poorly by the by the previous emperor again i, I can't help but burst into tears and i don't mean that in a cynical patronizing way i mean that in a genuinely yeah. heartfelt yeah. way and yeah. bloody good that it is on the hugo ballot and bloody good it's on the nebula ballot and it should be elsewhere yeah and it's a, it's a lovely book as well because it's a book about in a sense damaged people who've been treated badly yes doing good yeah you know uh, and kind of it's not a kind of triumph against the odds book. It's actually a book about you know how, you know how all of us have that kind of capacity to be good people and to do yeah. to do good things. It's a lovely book. I really and build bridges and build bridges <laughs> and build it's bridges. Both, it's both an engineering feat and a metaphor. It's brilliant. <laughs> okay, well let's build bridges to the next book on the ballot, the final one. Uh, yes, the Three Body Problem by Lu Xin. Uh, a book that was originally published in 2006, I believe, in uh, China, and was translated into English by Ken Liu, something which I think influences it very greatly. The, Goodreads describes it thusly. With the scope of June and the commercial action of Independence Day, Three Body Problem is the first chance for English-speaking readers to experience this multiple award-winning phenomenon from China's most beloved, beloved science fiction author, Liu Cixin. 
set against the backdrop of China's cultural revolution, a secret military project sends signals into space to establish contact with aliens. An alien civilization on the brink of disruption captures the signals and plans to invade Earth. Meanwhile on Earth, different camps start forming, planning to either welcome the superior beings and help them take over a world seen as corrupt, or to fight against the invasion. The result is a science fiction masterpiece of enormous scope and vision. That's a terrible blurb. Well, well, blurb it up, Ian. Tell us about the three-body problem. It's not that I've got a better blurb. It's that why would you tell people one of the major revelations in the blurb? I mean, you don't actually know going in unless you... I didn't read the blurb. Yeah. So you don't know that this is an alien, essentially an alien invasion novel until about halfway through. Or, or am I wrong? Am I missing something? Because I no, no, I yeah. And, and in fact, most of the first half of the novel is is dealing with the three body problem, which is a, an actual genuine scientific, uh, which I didn't know, had no idea about, um, scientific theorem enigma issue, a bit like Fermat's theorem, except completely different. Um, <laughs> but uh, the sort of you know unsolvable thing. But uh, yeah, that's what it's dealing with to begin with. And then you're told yes, there are these two camps and da 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 da. But that's not until. God, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a little, it's a pet peeve of mine when blurbs simply just sort of feel that they need to jump to the most interesting bit, which is potentially could be two-thirds into the novel, when there's so much that's so cool in the first half that doesn't necessarily need, yeah, doesn't necessarily, anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm trailing off here. How did you find the book, James? I liked it very much. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a kind of odd book because... You are reading a Chinese novel, and you know I haven't read a lot of Chinese novels. I've read some, um, and they are very different to novels that come out of the kind of Anglophone tradition. Um, and it's got, you know, certainly like lots of the other Chinese. And I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on Chinese literature for the moment, but certainly like many of the other Chinese novels I've read, read you have a kind of they're quite uneven in lots of ways. So this is a book that lurches from quite well done kind of realist action. You know, so the the opening sequence in The Cultural Revolution, for instance, which is astonishing, um, is, you know, it, it's a beautifully done piece of realist fiction at one level, um, to quite didactic kind of polemical essayistic sections, to... Um, in this one, there's all the stuff where there's a kind of a lot of kind of weird, kind of almost thriller, like bad thriller. It's you know, it's, it's like reading what sounds like the Kevin J. Anderson book you were describing earlier, um, uh, where it's kind of you know, police flying around the place and guns blaring and all that kind of thing. So there's this, this odd kind of generic instability about it, which is which is interesting. But it's such an interesting book. You know, and you feel like you're reading something that's very fresh because it's coming out of China. And as I said, all the stuff about the Cultural Revolution, I think, is fantastic. Um, I love the kind of crazy big ideas in it. I saw Ian, I think, talking on Facebook recently about the bit with the computer that they make out of soldiers, the giant computer, which is complete. 30 total. million. 30 million soldiers. I mean, I, I read some snarky person online a few weeks ago saying, oh, it would never work. Um, but... Uh, it's a wonderful idea whether it would work or not, you know, and, and, and that's all terrific. Um, uh, but there's a sense that you're just reading something that's kind of different, which is really, really interesting. And I, and I must say, I was struck personally reading it by, I guess, the conservatism of a lot of what we read, not just in genre or in the literary world, but kind of across the board in the Anglophone world, where we have been convinced that good writing looks like a particular kind of well-realised realism. And, you know, it's all about dialogue and character and all those kinds of things. And you're reminded reading this book that good writing can actually be a whole lot of other things. You know, it can be generically unstable. It can be didactic. It can be polemical. It can be all of those kinds of things. You know, so I found that really exciting, just to be reminded that, you know, things don't actually have to be kind of something that looks like it's been beautifully realised in a creative writing course. It can actually be something where it just says, actually, now I'm just going to explain something to you for 10 pages, you know, or now I'm just going to kind of do some weird piece of political analysis. So I, I found that incredibly exciting as well. I think... Well, I, sorry, go ahead, yeah, Sorry, well, I was going to say, I think a lot more than James, possibly. Um, I don't uh, you normally read hard SF or, in fact, understand it. 
but I actually found that um, this, and I don't know if it's the translation or just just the the text itself, as it was in Chinese, um, to be very readable and engaging. And frankly, it is, it is. I agree, a bunch of linked set pieces that essentially have a novel seems to be structured, but they are some. Not just thirty million people making a computer or soldiers making a computer. There are other things like that. I mean, even the that sort of horror beginning with um, past the Cultural Revolution section is astonishing. But the bit where Wang, one of our protagonists, wake starts uh, taking photos and there's a countdown clock on all these photos, and then he starts he's, he actually he actually can see this countdown clock and what the hell's going on. And there's this sense of real horror and tension about that, which which got to me. And there are other bits like that throughout the novel. It does. The last uh, 10% is extremely expository, um, but frankly, I loved it. There, mm. there's, sometimes there's obvious exposition where you go, oh, God, you're explaining the book to me. But the, <laughs> and I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to go into detail, but it was, it was, there were was so many ideas being thrown around in that last 10% about different dimensions and stuff that I just, oh, yeah, keep, keep going. This is great. Just keep, <laughs> this, just keep shoveling this down my throat because even though I don't normally like hard SF, this stuff is just blowing my mind. And this right here is what hard SF and fiction does when, it's, when, when we're talking about sense yeah. of wonder because an actual sense of wonder about the whole thing. Uh, Look, I mean, Wang is barely a character. Um, you know, he, he gets introduced. We're told about his family, who we never see again. Um, the best character in it is uh, the the Yi, I think her name is, who who we see at the start of the novel. Um, that's it's her father who gets caught up in the Cultural Revolution and gets um, in a terribly horrific scene, gets um, essentially stoned or smashed up by some by his students um, for being a traitor. And we see, and we get her story in bits and pieces throughout. And essentially, I feel like it's her novel more than anyone else's. Um, and she's definitely the most developed character. But for, in amongst all that, there are just some astonishing ideas which uh, <laughs> blew my capacitors. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I liked it a lot. I hope it sounded like I didn't. I think one of the things that's also worth saying about it is that, you know, translation is always difficult. Translation from Chinese to English is famously difficult um, just because the, you know, the way that Chinese encodes meaning as a written language is very different to the way that English encodes meaning as a written language. And so it's extremely difficult to bring stuff across the cultural antecedents, cultural references are all completely different. And I think that generally, I think some of the footnoting is a bit strange. I mean, there's stuff that's footnoted, you find yourself going, really, what? Why are you telling me that? We all know that. And then other things where you find yourself going, why aren't you telling me this thing I want to know? Um, but <laughs> even allowing for what I think is some slightly odd footnoting. I mean, I, I was a bit worried about the level of complete ignorance about the cultural revolution they were assuming readers had. Because um, I, I, mean, I just kept reading the stuff where they're telling you kind of really basic stuff about the cultural revolution. You're thinking, really? You don't think your readers are going to know this? Um, but having said that, I think the translation works really well as a novel. Now, whether... It works really well as a rendering of the Chinese novel. I don't know, but it's you know, it's it reads very well as a novel. You know, and and it is you know, it's very difficult bringing Chinese across, but is is certainly my understanding. It's interesting that the the Cultural Revolution stuff at the start of the novel, even though the Chinese government has moved away and has acknowledged the terrible things that occurred in in the sixties, the opening that we get is actually in the middle of the uh, Chinese version. So not to upset people from because I think the book according to the IO9 Q and A that was up, um, the book came out in the 30th anniversary or 35th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution and therefore, you know that because <laughs> it's not particularly positive of what happened in the 60s. So it's actually put in the middle for the uh, for for Chinese readers, which it's just again another those little things and little tidbits. Yeah, I mean it's one of the other things about Chinese writing is it all takes place within a very complex political. Um, context, you know, which makes, you know, which as Western readers, we're just not aware of, you know, and I mean, in a sense, there was a Chinese book a few years ago called, which was a huge sensation in China, and they sold in English called Wolf, 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 something, but, you know, it was really weird reading it as a Westerner, because it reads like a fascist tract to a Westerner, <laughs> it's kind of like, really, you're reading it in China, you know, maybe it was, but I suspect it wasn't, you know, I think they were reading it in a quite different kind of way, um, so, um, yeah, no, I, I I thought it was great, but I mean, uh, the, the Cultural Revolution stuff is one of those books where I found the first three or four chapters, you know, when you're just sitting with that sense of dizzying excitement about what you read, because it feels so fresh and so so kind of vivid and powerful and strange. You know? and, and that's largely sustained, I think, for the next 300 pages. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we, we've discussed five books more or less. There's an inevitable question that must be asked at this stage, and I think it's sort of now's not a bad time to ask it. And that is, given your reading, and I know, James, you've not read two of the five nominees, it'd be interesting to go around the group and sort of check in on, first of all, what you would hope would win the, the Hugo Award come August. I might go to you, Ian, first, just to be unfair. What do you think is going to win, Ian? What, oh, what, what, what would you like to see win? Sorry. Um, it's, for me, it's a toss-up between the uh, three-body problem and the Goblin, Goblin Emperor. I changed my mind daily. Uh, today, I'm on the Goblin Emperor. <laughs> so for the purpose of this podcast, the Goblin Emperor. But yeah. it is literally a daily. I don't know what I'll vote. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, and James, for you? Um, I have no idea what will win because I would have thought this year the, you know, in a sense, the factors driving the winning are ones that we can't know about. Um you, you can't predict. Um, I I think like you know I'd probably be going back and forth between between the two of them. In a in a year when there were not strange things going on, my guess is that it would come down to the Goblin Emperor or Ancillary Sword. Um, I don't know. You know, if, if there were, if there wasn't weirdness about the voting, I would guess that they'd be the two that would be in the running to win, possibly Ancillary Sword, just because more people will have read it, you know, all of that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, yeah, myself, look, oh, I think one of those two, and I, and I, I think, like, you know, I go back and forth. I mean, I really enjoyed The Goblin Emperor. I thought it was a hugely enjoyable book. I think it's a book that could travel outside genre, which is always fantastic. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it does a whole lot of interesting things around, you know, sexuality and race and, you know, Gender, that's all really good and really well done. It's a very, a very generous novel. But then uh, on the flip side, you know, the three-body problem is this kind of crazy, wild, you know, big ideas. It's culturally very interesting because it comes from somewhere you haven't seen. I, I can't make a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I want the three-body problem to win. Uh, the reason I want it to win, I think, is it's the kind of book I'd like to see win the Hugo. I think it's a smart engaged, challenging science fiction novel. Uh, I, I really, really am loving The Goblin Emperor. And should it win, I would stand and applaud mightily. Uh, so, I mean, my personal picks are either one of those two. I think the Anne Leckie is, in this group, the third most interesting book on the list. I think it may win because of reflexive voting rather than in, because it's, you know, the most worthy winner. And for what it's worth, I think there's a decent chance that Jim Butcher will win. Yes. Just just because of the sheer popularity of his series. Um, I mean, to be to use a completely irrelevant metric, his book gets five times the number of recommendations of any other book on Goodreads out of this group. More people are reading his books. Um, this is his first time on a Hugo ballot. Once you get onto get onto a ballot, it, you know, all bets are off and. People get suddenly go, oh, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I'd like to support it. So I think it could win. But, yeah, I'd love to see uh, Lucy Sin win the book, win the, win the award, and I guess share it with Ken, with Ken Liu, quite justifiably, who's listed in, you know, as, as, a, as the translator of the book on the actual awards nomination itself, which means he shares it. I, I think that's probably fair. I mean, I don't think any of us could split how much of what makes this version of the three-body problem enjoyable lies with Lucy Xin and what, what lies with Ken Liu. So, so it's going to be oh, very yeah. interesting come August. And, yeah. Yeah, and with that, I mean, you know, sort of, that's the Hugo ballad. I mean, up for the three books you've read, James, how would you rate it? I mean, do you think like it's a reasonable-looking Hugo ballad? Well, I've not read the other two, and they yeah. sound like books that... Oh. You wouldn't love... I wouldn't love, to be honest. Um, yeah, look, I, right. I, I, I always feel that the Hugo skews so American mm. in a sense that um, it, it leaves out a lot of books that I think are very interesting. Um, I'm surprised that Echopraxia, the Peter Watts book, didn't make it onto this year's shortlist uh, in some ways. Um, but, yeah, well, I mean, I think it looks all right. I mean, you know, if I'd been... If, if, if I'd had my... My brothers, you know, Station Eleven might have been on there. Um, Echopraxia might have been on there. You know, there's, there's a number of other things that might have been on there. But, you know, I think the three that are on there that I think should be on there are all really good books and probably deserve to be there. Yeah. And you, Ian? 
Uh, I think it uh, could have been a disaster and it's turned out to be quite an interesting uh, novel ballot. I can't speak for the other categories, but I um, think that there's some... Uh, fan- I mean, I, I've been blown away by one book and fell in love with another. And if, if you get at least two out of five, that's not too bad, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's not too bad at all. Look, it's not exactly a meatloaf song, but... You know, it's <laughs> no, it's not, bad. no. Um, um, two out of five but, but, but ain't looking, bad. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I yeah, I, I think it could have been. Look, I haven't, I hadn't started the Marco Clue, so I can't really comment on that one. Um, but I get the feeling it wasn't going to be my cup of tea, um, just by what people were saying about it. Although props to him for what he did in regards to the oh, yeah. whole awards situation. But um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'm trying to think of what else I would have liked to have seen on there. Definitely Station Eleven. Um, uh, agree with James on that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I read uh, the Gibson, and I thought that was an extremely smart book, but I had issues oh. with it. Yeah, I'm surprised the Gibson's not there, actually, to be perfectly honest. The peripheral, yeah. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, one of the sort of things that all of the Hugo insider people who preserve, you know, follow on up on too much of the nippery of awards always go on about is getting the statistics come, uh, you know, come the, you know, the, the evening of the awards, and so it'll be possible to look and see what the the non-distorted novel ballot would have looked like. And that's yeah, going to be I mean, a fascinating I'll, exercise. I'll be really interested to see how high Lockheed got, the Scalzi, and I'll be very interested to see how high the Jeff Vandermeer got and whether they split the three books apart or did it as a one as a whole and whether that affected the the nominations of, uh, of the Southern Reach series. Yep. Because, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how they treated it. Um, so... Very interested to see to see that. I think there, there could potentially be some Southern Reach controversy, even. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, that's it. We're, we're done. We've discussed the, the, the 2015 Hugo ballot. I'd like to thank you both for making the time to do it. I'm really, really uh, grateful to you. Uh, I think... I oh, know, I'm just making this up right now. <laughs> and, you know, look, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how other people react to it. For people listening to the podcast... There are five books. Uh, certainly, none of them. Well, I think four of them are, you know, well enough worth looking at, and three of them would be really, really rewarding. So, do do you know, sort of take a moment to check them out before you vote if you're going to vote in this year's Hugo Awards. And until then, thank you, James. Thanks, John. That's great. And thank you, Ian. Thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure to be on a podcast with James. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be on a podcast with you. Ian. Let's so 